Welcome to Sardisms, where we take great ideas and bring them together to have great conversations. In this episode, we're speaking with the recently retired Joe McDonald, who has been a child psychiatrist for more than 30 years and is regarded as one of the country's leading chief clinical information officers. Joe has always been a huge advocate of digital technology and despite retirement, is continuing to shape the future of NHSIT. Welcome, Joe. Joe, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and perhaps your origin story? Okay, yeah, um, my origin story. I've never even thought about having an origin story, but uh, yeah, I'm uh, I'm a psychiatrist by background. Uh, I have a long-standing interest in health IT, and I was national clinical lead for IT brackets mental health back during the, the national program for IT, uh, and that went reasonably well from a mental health point of view. And for that reason, I was put into uh, uh, a very big health IT project called Lorenzo, which is part of the national program as its medical yeah. director. We are definitely going to discuss that. And, and sub- <laughs> subsequently, having been career-limitingly frank about that part of the project, uh, <laughs> I, I had to leave uh, NHS Connecting for Health. And after that, I did some writing about health IT and also helped to found uh, the Chief Clinical Information Officers Network uh, in in England and, and the UK, uh, which was six angry people in a pub when we set off, and is about six thousand members now. Wow. Uh, subsequently, um, I was founding director of a regional integrated care record project called the Great North Care Record, which is used almost a quarter of a million times a month nowadays. That's about it, I think. Can you tell us what the Great North Care Record is? Because I I tried to sort of investigate it um, a couple of years ago when when I first sort of saw you appeared on my radar. And I was mm-hmm. like, what, what is this thing? It was a little bit hard for somebody outside perhaps that world to understand how it differs from an EPR, like an electronic patient record. What, what, what is it? There are there's lots of different EPRs in the northeast of England covering 3.6 million citizens. We've got a mixed economy of GP systems, uh, roughly 50-50 between EMIS and TPP, the two big GP suppliers. And the idea of the game was to make patient care safer by making the GP record uh, seeable in the secondary care hospitals, which of course it wasn't. Uh, So every time a patient went into an acute hospital or a mental hospital for that matter, the doctors in the hospital were flying completely blind. They knew nothing about you. Uh, they, they couldn't see your GP record or anything else for that matter. Uh, and the first thing we did was make that GP record visible in secondary care. And then latterly, we made secondary care records visible to the GP. And now all, pretty much all, you know, everybody rather said, I don't want that to happen to me, uh, has their record shared right across the Northeast. These people get, you know, safer care, basically. It's not an EPR per se. It's a means of sharing information at the point of care uh, so that um, in the ambulance, they know that you're an epileptic, an A&E, they know you're allergic to penicillin, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So it has very tangible benefits for uh, clinic, direct clinical care. The Great North Care Record also has the ambition to make the Northeast a really top quality place to do research by collecting patient preferences around research and your willingness to get involved around research. The idea behind that was from a conversation I had with Dave Whitlinger, who uh, wrote, well, at the time we started five years ago, ran the New York eHealth Collaborative. So 
we had a little money to do something called Great North Care Record. We weren't exactly sure what it was at the time. Uh, so we thought we'd start small, but we, we'd have big aspirations. So I rang Dave Whitlinger in New York City, as you do. He took my call because um, that's an interesting, interesting thing about people who are into information sharing. They're really into it. Hmm. So Dave, you know, who had no idea who I was, but was aware that I was trying to do something to better information sharing and improve patient care, took my call. Uh, and I said, Dave, you're eight years in your record sharing journey in, in New York City. You've got eight million records shared. It's the biggest record sharing project in the world. What would you do differently if you were starting again? And he said, oh, I collect everybody's preferences about the willingness to be involved in research. And then I'd have the biggest research uh, facility in the world. And I thought, hello. <laughs> <laughs> that might be quite a good thing for an area of the country whose, whose shipyards have all closed recently, whose mines are all closed. And mm. We're looking for something else to be excellent at since we invented mains electricity and the trains. Um, and it's been, <laughs> down, been downhill a bit since then. But I thought, what if we could be you know, the most connected and consensus health economy in the world. Um, so we thought we'd have a go at that. Uh, and it turns out it's really, really hard. Mm. If you get the right people and a small group of people and you begin to show that the thing is possible between one general practice and one hospital and another and another and another and another, well, 376 general practices later, 12 trusts and eight local authorities with 3.6 million citizens, you've got the Great North Care Record, mm. which has done okay. Yeah. But it's a massive achievement. It's why yeah. we ended up contacting you, much like you did to this gentleman in, in New York. I think <laughs> yeah. we we sort of contacted you just at the point of your retirement, didn't we? And um, yeah, and uh, yeah, the day after the day after I retired, <laughs> uh, the plan was to slink quietly away. Yeah, you found um, it out. Exactly. Uh, but it got announced all over the place, and then I got ambushed at a big online retirement party. Before you knew it, it was raining jobs, uh, and, <laughs> uh, and and retirement seemed slightly distant again. But there you go, to be honest. Yeah, you don't want to retire. I retired a couple of years ago. It was boring. It's lethal as well, right? Yeah, people die. They die of retirement. Yeah. I mean that literally. I think it's the, you know, if you've been working in a high-pressure NHS environment for a long time and you suddenly, suddenly stop, I think you can get the bends. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So I, I feel like we saved your life in that respect. Um, well, I've... I've, I've <laughs> That may well be true, Kevin. May well be true. <laughs> no, it's been great because we've been working on a kind of open source workforce project, and um, yeah, should we talk a bit about that? Yes, please. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you had me on the call at open source, basically, because I've been trying to get the NHS to move into a, a, a more open source direction for I don't know ten or fifteen years without without any tremendous success. And when you called and said, oh, we're going to do something open source on the staff side. I thought, genius. I've been going full frontal assault trying to get Cerner and Epic's tanks off the NHS lawn um, <laughs> when, you know, as a, as a one-man band, and that's plainly not going to work. But I think the door is open around the back of the NHS mm. for all the other myriad systems, which are often terrible, that I have to use uh, you know, as an NHS doctor. Maybe we can open source things on the staff side 
And when people see that that works, we could go from there. Yeah. I mean, there's a few tanks parked on, on this side of the lawn as well, but um, it's, I think it's underrated actually uh, how much, how much scope there is and how much leverage there is to make, make changes in that side of things. Like the half of the NHS budget is workforce. Uh, and so yeah. I think every consultant is a 250K on cost per year for that hospital, perhaps even higher. Yeah. So if those resources are misallocated, then, um, the, well, it has massive knock-on effects. Well, yeah, I mean, the other, the other thing that got me about your argument was that, um, you know, I've been banging on on Twitter for a while about, can we please leave Matt Hancock's tech vision alone? We do not need to revisit that beautiful document which is full of stuff that we all want. And yet, you know, we always seem to be on the verge of uh, abandoning it or going to something new uh, when we haven't actually had a go at implementing it. For all the best reasons, COVID and what have you, clearly hijacked NHSX's agenda um, at a time when they might have been looking to move on that. But I'm just worried now with all the chatter that, you know, X disappears, the tech vision disappears, and, uh, you know, the... The wonderful open source, open platform vision that it provided will disappear with it. No, not going to happen. No, not going to happen. Why is it? it when well, we know why it's not going to happen because of that wonderful book you're reading, which I haven't read yet, but I should imagine is something around the uh, the concept that people people not organisations, right? Yeah, absolutely. So organisations do churn, and it was one of the things that we learned in Great North Care Record actually is that trusts will merge. But your project doesn't have to die if you've got the right people with the right attitude and the right principles, you can keep going through organisational churn. Uh, so I share some of your optimism, Kevin, but at the same time, you know that my ringtone is we don't get fooled again, which is bitter and <laughs> twisted. <laughs> and, and a reflection of my time in the national programme and other time. Yeah, we've, we've met quite a few people who are kind of battle-weary from open source um, in the past we've got we've got the two um the two grumpy naughty boys rob dyke and marcus Bohr. marcus we've had on the podcast before i feel like they're kind of they they, they remind me of the the two old guys in the muppets you know like <laughs> every every time something new comes through they're throwing things at it but i think with good intent right like those guys those guys want to see it change and we, we're finding a lot of people i've been speaking to 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 people from all over uh, the NHS open source world and and beyond local government. And we, we had a good chat, didn't we, last Friday to uh, Andy Sanford there in mm. local government. And there's a lot of people that want this to happen. I agree. I mean, it's interesting that you, you mentioned that Marcus and Rob, and they're, they're like the two old guys criticising everything uh, in the Muppets. But I think of those two old guys as they're Second World War veterans. Mm. Uh, yeah. You know, they're scarred. They are, they're traumatised. They've got you know, health IT, PTSD, they're, they're so, they've seen so much pain that um, they can't help but be a little embittered by, you know, there's a glimmer of hope that shines within them and they can't help but get drawn back to the open source flame. But then they're very quickly discouraged by some of the behaviours that they see. But, yeah. uh, you know, it's the only way out in the end. Yeah, you, what you need is some fresh, completely green person to come in. Who hasn't had their spirit crushed yet, Kevin? That's Not what yet. I like about you. <laughs> you don't know how pointless this is yet. No, no. no. I don't, honestly, I just, I've always had like an optimistic 
nature anyway i don't think it's because i'm particularly green i've i've when when we started this business there was uh, a company which has now been sold because they they failed but they they won all of the royal college contracts and um i remember phil when we co-founded he was like oh look at this i was like don't worry about it we're going for it and you know here we are 10 years later and yeah we didn't need to worry about it so I'm a fellow believer, but uh, trust me, towards the end there, my fire had started to go out a little bit. But um, I have to say meeting you guys has relit it, but not least because there's a new way into the problem rather than mm. going, you know, a full frontal assault on massive EPR providers, both British and American. Um, there's another way. Uh, and to show the, the value of building a, you know open platform with interoperable modules, uh, it is the only logical thing to do. And eventually, logic we'll overcome some of the problems we've got here yeah i i think we're approaching it in a slightly different way as well because we've we've been working collectively on this sort of execution essentials which is to say look the vision is good we want this to happen um but you know executing a vision is a harder thing uh, to do than actually just have the vision we all, we all agree that the vision is a good idea how do we actually make it happen how do we make it come to life and I, I hope from all of the kind of research that we've been doing and talking to you and talking to everyone else who is a bit battle weary and has, has suffered all the scars, um, that we've, we've learned some of the lessons. Uh, one of the big ones being community and, and building up uh, a sense of joy and purpose and fun about what you're doing and bringing people along with a big vision. I, I agree, absolutely. I think um, you've got a, a slide in your deck, which is like the periodic table and all the different elements that you require to make uh, you know, a really big, really complex project work. And it's the first time I've seen anybody really draw together the sheer complexity of those elements. And to include joy um, in that, in that um, periodic table, I think, uh, too often... We've looked at this in a mechanistic and deterministic way. You know, we're going to build it. We're going to, you know, draw a big plan and we're going to spend a fortune uh, and, and make it like it looks on a bit of paper. And I'm afraid that the world of health IT just doesn't work like that. As Morgan Anastat says, it's much more like gardening than it is construction. Uh, and you've got to start somewhere. You've got to do something. And you've got to replicate it. You've got to modularize it. You've got to make the interfaces all work together. Um, mm. And I love that gardening analogy because I've, mm. I've watched 15 years of that constructional approach. Uh, and, you know, in GNCR, Great North Care Records, we tried to modular, grow it, try it, water what works, cut back what doesn't. And it works. I know it works. Mm. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I, there, is a, there is a way to get this done, but you have to have that understanding of the complexity yeah we love professor margan anderstad don't we we do we, she you, you introduced me to to her and, and another gem the abilene paradox yeah i mean i, I, I love margan so much that i traveled to oslo to get a couple of hours with her in starbucks <laughs> just, just to yeah. see if the legend was true and it yeah. was <laughs> uh, uh, and um you know I, I first saw her in a five minute video over my wife's shoulder who was doing the uh, NHS Digital Academy stuff. And I thought, who's this brilliant woman? Um, you know, who in a, in a few words says, you know, actually the big architectural plan from Whitehall won't work, never will work, never has worked. And what you need to do is this. And 
if you watch that little 15 minute YouTube video, there's a gem in every line. You know, there's there's solid yep. gold in every line. And then the other favourite is obviously Jerry Harvey, uh, God rest his soul, organisational psychologist who coined the phrase Abilene Paradox. And there's a wonderful, admittedly, two-hour video on YouTube with uh, Jerry Harvey talking about the Abilene Paradox. Made short, uh, it is possible for a large group of people to all go and do a thing that none of them want to do. And that's kind of where we've been sat for some time in NHSIT. Everybody wants to tech vision. Nobody's doing it. Mm. So uh, how do you break that cycle? That's What's the actionable way to overcome the Abilene paradox? Uh, somebody has to point it out. Um, you know, that actually making jet fuel out of peanut oil probably won't work. Uh, and, you know, if you've been at it for a long time and it's not working, you might want to look at plan B, invest a little in plan B. Uh, you know, years ago, Tony Shannon, who was a big um, advocate of open source, had a proposal that they just take 1% of the annual NHS IT spend and put it into open source uh, and, you know, in a place, do an open source thing um, and see if you could grow an ecosystem and a community around that and see if it would catch on like Great North Care Record. People, the neighbours would see it was good, see that it was reasonably priced. Nothing's free. I mean, nobody wants something for nothing, mm. but they can see that it was reasonably priced, see that it was good, see that they can improve it uh, I was listening to a, a podcast by very senior old um, GPIT people the other day, uh, and they were describing the 256 GP record systems which existed at the time, you know, 30 years ago. And they were saying that, you know, you could ring up the developer, you could ring up David Stables, who's the, the legend behind Emis, uh, and say, I don't like your medications page. And he'd say, all right, then. You change it. Here's the code. You have a double name. Uh, and that was how those systems got to be really user-friendly, was by not being locked down. And that. You've, you've had your three changes for the decade. Um, you know, if you want to move a full stop, it'll be more money. Just doesn't work. And consequently, some of our, you know, some of our stuff nowadays looks uh, old uh, and tired um, and, and not really up to it. I'm glad you called me David Stables on Speed. That was a that was a compliment. I did call you David Stables on Speed because yeah, I think you have a similar enthusiasm and a similar willingness, actually. You know, to be the iconoclast. You have, somebody has to put the hand up and say enough. Somebody has to say, you know what, I'm not sure this is working. Uh, and I think you you you've done that, and I think uh, with sufficient good grace. Um, you know, not to rubbish what other people are doing, but good grace to say, can we have a can we have another go? Can we try something a little bit different? Yeah, yeah. And and also the spot, the spot that the tech vision. Nothing wrong with the tech vision. No, nothing wrong with it at all. Look, beautiful document full of great ideas. How do we deliver it? Exactly. Yeah, it's a great document. I I think. Um, hmm. How do we phrase this? Uh, <laughs> Matt Hancock. Uh, uh, treading carefully here you know people love him hate him like marmite but one thing is clear he's come from a tech background and i think he understands the revolutionary power of technology to to change things and i know there is there's a reluctance particularly in the clinical community to to sort of go well tech doesn't solve all our problems right you know we've had this coronavirus pandemic it wasn't really technology that 
that solved it. It was feet on the ground, doing the work that needed to be done. And and I, I get that skepticism too. But 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 for someone like me who comes from a health tech background, having someone in that position who who gets it is a gr- is a great opportunity, and I don't want to waste it. Look, I'm a, I'm a card-carrying, literally card-carrying member of the Labour Party. Always have been, always will be. But we've seen secretaries of state come and go. Uh, I think I must be on my, I don't know, 13th, 14th in my career. Uh, average length of stay about two years, to be honest. Uh, and you, when you get one who turns up who's tech-savvy, believes in tech, writes a decent tech vision or got somebody to write him a decent tech vision, uh, I don't care whether he's a Tory. Uh, if the vision's a good enough one, <laughs> we should go after it. Um, uh, and uh, you know, if we don't get after the vision, if we don't open platforms and stuff, when Matt Hancock is in charge, uh, it's not going to happen anytime soon. So I think there's an opportunity here. Love him, I hate him. Whether you're a Tory or whether you're a communist, um, you know, the right thing to do is in that tech vision. Can we just get on and do it? Yes, we can. To quote a big man, <laughs> my my uh, follower on Twitter, Barack Obama. Don't like to well, Barack Obama <laughs> follows you on Twitter. Oh God, that's again. <laughs> we did this. We did this in the last podcast. Yes, he we does. Did. Yeah, and we've wow. no idea why. Well, we figured out that we, we, we probably doesn't know Kevin. <laughs> there's an, there's yeah. another Kevin Monk that works for Dave Chappelle. Uh, but anyway, right? Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Covered it, covered it in our previous podcast. But does that, that, that means you can DM him though, doesn't it? It does. Oh, I, I could. Uh, I don't follow him though. <laughs> Maybe I should. Oh, I should do. Yeah, you definitely should. should. Do. Wasted opportunity. I know. I know. I will ask him. I will just slide into his DMs. I'm not sure how he can help us on this. Um, it's actually uh, interesting, the American health tech industry. I've been spending mm. some time on Clubhouse um, which is like this new social media app thing. And there's various health tech rooms on there. And so much of the debate uh, revolves around the sort of financial and insurance mm-hmm. um, setup that they've got there. Every discussion about EPRs is around how you get paid and who gets paid by what. I'm not, I'm not saying that the people caring there don't, don't, or money obsessed. It's just that the EPR systems have to manage that thing, and it becomes a yeah. it right. becomes a huge part of what shapes those systems. And um, it really points at something that we've been discussing and be, been discussing with NHSX and other people who are trying to make this tech vision happen. Is that the the culture, the sort of external pressures. Uh, in, a, in a sort of Darwinian, Darwinian sense, what's the environment around it? How does it shape the products you end up creating is a, is a really big part in the technology that emerges from that. So like a big push for what we're trying to do at the moment is to train, change that culture so that it so that technology companies that care about interoperability mm-hmm. can that do the... The, what David did and, you know, respond to your requests to change the software. So those sorts of companies start to emerge more. Sorry, I'm on well, my soapbox here. No, that's that's fine. I'll, I'll, I'll join you on the soapbox there. Kev, go ahead. Yeah, go on. I'll move over. One of, one of my hobby horses is that we've actually conflated um, electronic patient records and performance management. So we've got clinicians recording stuff because of the, you know, the, we went down the market routes of, of saying, you know, people have to compete for patients and you get paid for what you do and all the rest of it. 
And now the clinicians now have to record a lot of performance management stuff that isn't patient record. It isn't Mrs. Miggins has a temperature of, you know, 39 and a nasty cough. If Mrs. Miggins arrived at this time and we did this, this and this, and consequently we have to send a bill from this, that, and the other. Mm. Some of that is coming to an end, I hope, in, in the, the next round of NHS reforms. I mean, it's mad, isn't it? The, you know, the Tories are going to do with the inter, do away with the internal market. <laughs> saw, nobody saw that coming. I know. You know, you're all going to have to work together, health and social care. You're all have to work together in the integrated care system. What? The Tories? Are you kidding me? Um, but there it is. <laughs> it's become a strange couple of years, isn't it? It is the world's turned upside down, but it might give us an opportunity to free conditions up from recording performance management stats, mm-hmm. uh, which has become the bane of our lives. Um, clinicians in the NHS spend 25% of their time with patients and 75% doing something else. A large chunk of the something else is recording stuff in systems that aren't very good at recording right. stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, there's the prize. Yeah. How did we get from just some bits of paper um, and recording stuff in some notes to where we are now. It feels like if we could just simplify it somehow. <laughs> the, sometimes I'm pr- playing around with Word and things are jumping around all over the place. And I think, who the bloody hell complicated this thing? <laughs> like at one, point, at one point it was a typewriter and, and now we've got this thing Oh, Clippy popping up trying to yeah. write my trying yeah. my trying to write my letters for me or whatever. Um, it, it got complicated, and I always wish there was a slider that I could go yeah. from somewhere between typewriter, mm-hmm. and it would just make a bell sound when I got to the end of a line, <laughs> and and what we've got now, and I could just change the slider. We, presumably, at a point, there was a medical record system that was bits of paper in a folder. And yes. can't we have that, but electronic? You could do, but we get, um, I mean, to be fair, you can still have that in some hospitals in the UK <laughs> where it's bits of paper in a folder. Um, that, is, that's, that hasn't gone away. That is still there. Um, I think part of the problem was that we, we, we did look to go beyond that and make the data useful. Mm. Um, you know, and be able to get some intelligence out of the system. But that's what I mean. Did we, did we overstretch? Is that, is that what happened? Because to me, a hospital that had essentially a Microsoft Word document on, oh, I'm banging on about Microsoft Word here, but <laughs> had a, a, a free form text document that was encrypted and stored online and you could give that and you could pass that around. There are elements of that. Now, there are, obviously, I'm a psychiatrist, so in, in mental health, we record a great deal of free text in our electronic patient records. We record people's life stories as told to us. Um, and that largely in a in a in quite a wordy format. Now I got involved in electronic patient records 15 years ago because because I hate what schizophrenia does to 16 year old kids. Mm. You know, if you can imagine getting dementia at 16 and then living with it for the next 60 years, that's what it does. Or that's what it does to some of them. Mm. Um, I mean, in my time, the treatments have improved greatly. So now sometimes people are better in a few weeks rather than in an institution for a lifetime, that in my own lifetime. But when people ring me up um, as the only child and adolescent psychiatrist they know and say, hi, Joe, I know I haven't seen you since university 40 years ago, but um, my son has just developed first episode psychosis. What's the best treatment? And I have to say, I don't know. There's a dozen treatments, but um, 
you know, and I'm pretty sure which treatment will work for your son is recorded somewhere on their genome. But we're unable to access the data because it's all in a long handwritten form over the last 30 years. So there is some value in collecting coded data. Um, mm. You know, so if I can look back through 30 years of notes and see actually which treatment works for, you know, the blonde, blue-eyed children of Nordic people, um, or maybe even if their genome was in there, I could actually isolate a few genes. So there's value in coded data and there's value in getting that down. He's saying it was a, a trade-off then between having to codify the stuff so that we can learn as a, as a society from it. And, yeah. But then to that patient, that immediate... I had an MRI, you know, I, I've known people to go into hospitals and say... I had an MRI last week or whatever, and and the doctor that's, that they're consulting with that week says, "Oh, I didn't know what was that for then." And you know, mm-hmm. there's there's confusion about what what was even happened or your history, mm-hmm. you know. So for the the patient, it can be really disorientating because because um, it's it's not just a clear history of no, what right. happened to them. So for them. They don't want it codified. I, I wouldn't want it codified. So there's a there's but... a trade-off between codification and they're inversely proportional. How much coded data you put in versus how usable it is. Uh, and if it's just stories, uh, you know, in a Word document, then that's really easy for everybody to understand to include the patients. The GPs, to some extent, because they've been putting in coded data for years, they kind of speak this Klingon of read codes. Um, mm. uh, and they can understand these codes, but they don't mean anything to anybody else. So in the end, they, they have you heard of SNOMED care? <laughs> yeah, of course, of medical yeah, yeah, yeah. We, have, we have to do it, like job planning and stuff. Yeah. Well, there you go. So mm. SNOMED, you know, 400 terms. Now, that's more than some languages. 400,000 terms, sorry. Yeah. That's more than some languages have got. And consequently, um, most clinicians, when you talk to them about SNOMED, other than the dweebs like me uh, and the, you know the, those that hang out in CTIO network, know what? Um, yeah. and, and they've no, they've no idea For what our it listeners, is. It's a really funny system, isn't it? Because you can basically code, code up any kind of ailment that someone has. So they'll be like, they had a bee sting in their in, in their left arm, and it was this type of B. I, I, mean, I don't think it quite goes into that detail. I think it, I think it does. Does it? I think it does, okay. yeah. It's like we've had to invent a new language to talk to the computer. If only we just left the whole damn thing in Latin 200, 300 yeah. years ago, we'd have been fine. If it, yeah. and we'd all spoke fluent Latin in the health service, and, and we'd all be speaking the same language, but we're not. Uh, so we have to invent a new language called Snowman, which might be replaced by artificial intelligence before we've ever coded enough in the snowman to get an answer out of it because it's 40 years old. Hasn't right. exactly delivered anything yet. Oh, that's a bit harsh. I'm harsh there. Has it not? Because this is one of the things that Morgan Anastad says about the importance of, uh, of these projects is immediate benefit. Yeah, because we're all psychopaths. Um, we're not all psychopaths, but we do like a bit of instant gratification. Um, many of us can defer gratification for ooh, nearly an hour before uh, before we want to see some return on our work. But her argument is that you you know you should you should attack problems where you do see an immediate benefit of it because it gives you immediate feedback that you're you are tackling a real problem. Exactly so. So if you're not getting benefit really quite quickly, if there's no wow or there's no ooh that's better than yesterday. Um, which is probably all the people expect in the NHS, to be honest, is that if you come into work and it's better than yesterday, you, they, they love you um, because it's painful to use what they've got now. So if you just make it a little bit better, um, 
you get that instant reward. You also draw a crowd back to your next meeting about improving whatever it is. Um, uh, uh, and if they begin to see you as a credible source of less pain, um, then then they'll you know you can build a movement, and mm. that's what you have to do. You have to build a bit of a social movement around this stuff and a and an ecosystem. Uh, uh, you know, around NHS IT. I can't remember what else I was going to say. I'm crap at this podcast, and I'm no joke. No, you're not. Me. You're very good. I find it really hard to uh, think what, what I, I don't know. It's tough. <laughs> <laughs> Where did that bit out? Well, sometimes, sometimes, Kev, it doesn't take all that long to say what it is that needs to be said. Mm. And sometimes you can go on and on and on asking questions when. You know, it really is as simple as we've got a great tech vision. We don't quite know how we're going to deliver it, but here's a plan what we wrote that yeah. um, we'd, we'd like to press on with. It will take a little money, like everything, yeah. to get it going. But just what if, what if the NHS in the UK became the place that created the open platform, open source system that lit the blue touch paper in the same way that the internet took off right. with mm. W3C and a few... Mm you know, believers coming together to make it go. I do feel we're in a unique position to do so as well, because, you know, something I have also learned from being on Clubhouse and talking to kind of US health tech groups is that there's there's something about the UK and its ability to deliver on a public sector that's special. You know, the GDS team, the government digital service team that does all of the, the uh, you know, your DVLA licensing and things like that, that tech is good and that's been rolled out and that, that, team, that team there is a special team and something to be proud of. And I'd love to see that replicated more in the uh, NHS. Kev, the, the other thing about the NHS is, you know, we slightly rubbish the National Programme for IT there, but it did give us the NHS number. Uh, and that means that every citizen in the country has a unique identifier. In the United States of America, I took this story to Harvard, they would kill to have a unique identifier for every citizen mm. and be able to link up health data across geographies and across time. We've got 30 years' worth of electronic data sitting in the GP record. It's the biggest successful electronic patient record system in the world without question with general practice IT in the UK, and there is a ton of valuable data in there. Um, the world is clamoring to get their hands on that data, uh, and you know we could use it for the good of the NHS. Yeah, you know, with the right permissions and and make it all above board. But in, in you know in America, they're, they're trying to strike a deal with Facebook to figure out who's dead, the ultimate health outcome. Okay. <laughs> So oh my God. we at least have a register of who's died. We have a unique identifier in their GP record in the, the NHS number, and we can link up stuff and do incredible research. Mm. We get the government's piece right. Mm. In America, they're asking Facebook who's dead. Mm. Not good. I mean, we're kind of the perfect size nation with the perfect kind of background in this. I, I do think it can be a real beacon uh, of open open source tech yeah. often we are downstream of the usa on open source technology the, the things that we build our systems in uh, one's ruby on rails um is well actually the guy who created it's danish but he lives in america now you know it's backed by a kind of american company uh, the react javascript framework comes from facebook there's there's lots of open source technology that is downstream of american business 
And I kind of feel like because of their, because of some of the cultural issues there around health tech, that we don't get any of that downstream benefit. And so it has mm. to come, has to yeah, come from us. Exactly. But I think the, the actual environment that we've got in terms of, you know, data that's already there uh, and our ability to, to link it across systems with the right permissions. Um, I don't, not sure that's any, that happens anywhere else in the world, to be honest. And not not with thirty years worth of electronic data. Well, um, Gary McAllister. Do you know Gary McAllister, who wrote an interesting like Liverpool, t- Liverpool footballer? No, 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 no. <laughs> I think he. That seems on no, topic. Yeah, I'm going to get Ryan. He's either CIO or CTO uh, at GSTT. Although I think he he left a few months back. Wrote a book called Introduction to Digital Healthcare in the NHS. I I could be getting him wrong because I actually love to get him on a podcast. Um, We'll, we'll, we'll tag him in this. Maybe he'll yeah, have a listen. Definitely. Okay. Um, but I think he kind of makes the argument, I could have this wrong, that the national program for IT was just ahead of its time. There was, it was too early. Well, you could, you could make that argument. Um, I, Where I did would, it go wrong? Should we, should we talk about the war? Let's talk about our battle scars and the war. Well, I, for me, it was upside down um, in terms of where the money was. What, what we got right about GPIT and, and consequently having those advanced GPIT systems in the world is we gave the money to the GPs and said, go off and buy or build IT systems. And it is. Uh, and because they'd have to use them every day, they were spending effectively their own money on themselves or the money they'd been given. When we did the National Programme for IT, we kept all the money central and thought, ah, you know, those dodgy hospital doctor types, um, they'll go up and spend it on, you know, ludicrously expensive, unsuitable stuff. So we'll control it all from the centre with a few central contracts. Um, and that way we'll get best value. But what they got was, as Milton Friedman would say, about spending somebody else's money on somebody else. That's never a good way to spend money, but it was unfortunately the underlying way we spent money in the national program. And consequently, there was little clinical consultation. And so when things got bored, they didn't didn't really do what people expected to do and they didn't use them. Mm. So consequently, I mean, I'm a big fan of the three use test. If software is any good, it's useful, usable, and therefore used. Mm. And you know you failed one and two if nobody's using it. Um, and then it's just a question of, of was it one or was it two? So you, mm. you've got to you've got to make stuff that people want to use. Professor Morgan Anderstad says about that second project. So she should probably explain that the, that she investigated. I'm sure she's done other projects and other academic papers, but one the one that springs to mind and the one we that she talks about in the video that we'll we'll link to is that there's these two projects in Denmark. Um, one is to change the EPR system. On a, on a national level, so it's very centrally uh, organized. And the second project is emergent and uh, comes from the ground up. It was a, a small number of actors. It was a patient instru- extraction tool, and it was two hospitals that needed to share um, patient record data between them. And, and so they had a problem. And again, this comes to that kind of get the immediate benefits. They had a problem. And so they sort of created their own system and it came out of that. And then once they started using it, this is your you, you know, used, they, they did not want to give it up and they, they, you couldn't wrestle it away from them. And then that best practice started to spread. And now, mm-hmm. as I understand it, uh, Sundhead, Sund, I'll probably pronounce it wrong, Sundhead.dk is now the national standard. So it came from the other way around. 
Yeah, it's a classic description. I mean, she describes in her book, Working with the Installed Base, she describes a number of these projects which are grown from seed, as it were, by from end users, working with technical people to say, I've got this very specific problem which I'd like you to help me solve. And then solve it and go, oh, well, that works for that. Would it work for anything else? And before you know it, it's, it's gone through a country. And I don't think it took very long at all, actually, to go through the whole of Denmark in the same way we put in a very simple solution for the northeast of England, and it went through 12 trusts in really short order, 3.76, 3.6 million citizens, etc. If you get it right, it flies off the shelf. You don't even have to advertise it. You don't even have to tell anybody. The doctors go to the pub and tell the other doctors, well, I can see the GP record for my A&E system. Really? Why can't I? Goes in on Monday morning, <laughs> complains to the IT department, says, Brian can see the GP record from, from A&E. Why can't I? Well, he rings up the other trust and they go, well, you just have to put this in. Really? That cheap? Honestly? Really? Yeah, success is generally cheaper than massive, massive architected failure which is one of the great lessons. But they do have a problem, don't they, that if if things emerging from the bottom up and sort of fandom in in the lower levels of grassroots sort of emergence is the way to run these projects, how can a central body orchestrate that? You, because <laughs> the two obviously don't go hand in hand. How can you centrally orchestrate emergent bottom-up systems? Well, we think we've got an answer to that, don't we? This, yeah, is a, this is a concept so. behind our plan. Uh, I think that's right. Uh, my favourite story about how you how you how you build something really great at a distance without having much control is um, there's a there's a massive fortified castle on the island of Nisseros, and it was it was built by a guy who never went there, never saw it, never touched it, uh, and the guy was called Mausolos, uh, from which we get the word mausoleum, and he was the king of Lycia. Uh, and he had a federated structure um, such that uh, the, his general from the island of Nisaros would have to go to Helicarnassus, where also the first mausoleum, one of the seven wonders of the world, was built. So he's building all the biggest engineering projects in the world, including a massive castle on Nisaros. Uh, and all he said is, uh, more or less, secure Nisaros, make sure there's a massive castle there that will last for 2,000 years. Here's the budget. If I visit you and it's not built, you'll be gutted and flayed. Now, obviously, we don't want to be an organisation no. that's gutting and flaying people, but we do want to distribute the budget to trusted lieutenants and yeah. people who can be trusted and who've got the right principles, um, not enforced by gutting and flaying, but who we know to be you know, on board of delivering the project. And I dare say he probably hired people who delivered actual things before. I suspect he didn't go to somebody who'd never done it or to an academic who's written a paper about it. I suspect he went to builders to build his castle. <laughs> well, we're, uh, skin in the game is what Nassim Taleb calls it, right? <laughs> if you're going to be gutted and flayed, then you, you're going to go to someone who actually knows what they're doing. It was Much of it was done before written language, so his reputation may have been somewhat embellished down the ages. But yeah. Uh, don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But delegation of the budget uh, to people who can do things uh, is key. Uh, and, you know, given that he had no internet, he didn't even have any posts, mm. he didn't even have any handwriting. All he had was a chance to tell somebody, here's the message, here's the money, go build it. And when you look at it today, 
it's it's brand new. <laughs> it's two and a half thousand years old. It's, wow. It yeah. looks brand new. I was reading, uh, we discussed this a little bit the other day, but they were talking about um, Penn Station in New York. There was an article about Penn Station in New York and saying how it really become... Uh, it was decaying. There was this grand grand station built at the time of the American Railways. You know, it's this fantastic thing. Eventually, got taken over by Amtrak and things like that. But um, the central argument of this this article was that we've moved into um, a time in history where people are scared to give power to people because you know historically it's been rich old white guys you know and they've not always they've not always used that power mm. um for 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 good good purposes um that said if you never give anyone any power to do anything and you're you're scared to hand over power then mm-hmm. you end up with something like pen pen station in new york mm. where nobody is trusted to act benevolently on that thing and we're 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 stuck, aren't we? We're paralyzed. Yeah. I, I think I've gone well in our execution essentials. We talk about autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And I think the autonomy thing, transparent autonomy, is another thing to say. Yes, we trust you to go and do this thing, but as long as you do so in a way that everyone can see what you're see what you're up to. So if you start doing things wrong, we pull the plug. I mean, I mean, absolutely. I mean, the interesting the the U.S. reference in Penn State chimes with Mausolos and with ancient Greece because um, the Lycian Federation that Mausolos was king of, uh, delegation was the whole point of that. And it worked to be well for several hundred years. But in fact, Thomas Jefferson built the US Constitution around the Lycian Federation history. Oh, there you go. So you, you, delegate, you delegate to trusted people because the geography was too big to control um, you know, uh, and you have to have you know a, a federation of people who you can trust in, a, in order to, to make it work. But the other thing about Penn State, that example you gave, I think it's, it reminds me of, of a, um, because I'm a, trained as a family therapist, systems can get into an unhealthy equilibrium and they can stay that way for years and years and years. And sometimes Salvador Mnuchin, uh, who was the founding father of, of family therapy from a structural point of view, he said that sometimes you have to go into a system and you have to just disrupt it anyhow. And he called that the creation of an unbalancing manoeuvre. Now, I, you know, and he'd go into a family therapy session and he'd just turn the table over and go and sit in the corner and sob and see what the family did. Um, and everybody then shifted out of their position, their unhealthy, stable equilibrium, and then have to reform into another type of system. So you've unbalanced the system gives you a chance to put things down in the right place. The NHS IT market has been in, in an unhealthy equilibrium for some time and requires an unbalancing manoeuvre, I think, in terms of um, you know, backing uh, open platforms. I feel like we come, at, we come to the same conclusions from different places because in tech world, uh, there's this sort of idea of finding local optima um, that you you know if you're trying to climb a hill and you're trying to get to the highest point in the hill that you do, you don't know that there's another bigger hill further away and actually you have to you have to go exploring you have to go uh, you have to get outside of your local optima out of your, out of your local maximum yeah yeah in order to discover there's a start of a bigger hill over here 
Well, from a cognitive behaviour therapy point of view, Kevin, we would say if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, so you have to change something. So, you know, from a therapy point of view, if you're depressed today and all you did was lie around the door watching the telly, for God's sake, do something tomorrow. Anything. Yeah. You know, even if it's just five yards walk to the front gate, it's a step up from what you did yesterday. So you've got to change something. I was going to um, ask you, actually, just, I know we're sort of talking about NHS tech, but lessons learned on just general mental health from a year from from a career in psychiatry. Uh, what are the big takeaways? What are the are, were they were they too acute? I mean, sorry, am I equating sort of? I know our just general kind of good mental health in 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 a in the lucky section of the population compared to, I you were probably dealing with some really acute cases. I know that's the case of Oxley's. Yeah, I ended up, uh, you know, very highly specialised with people with very severe uh, mental illness at a very young time. But from a COVID point of view, top tips, have a getting up time, have a bedtime, go out during the day. Um, you know, for, for the rest of us, that's, that's probably about it. Um, you know, the, the main maintenance of routines, wearing a tie during the yeah, week, etc. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's your normal workwear, I'm guessing. This is mine. Uh, I'm um, routinely uh, badly dressed. <laughs> but, yeah, building, building in some routines. And the importance of getting some daylight on the back of your eye because you, mm. your eye, optic nerve actually acts like a uh, like fibre optic cable. And the amount of light that goes down that cable to the, the inner gubbins of your brain, as we doctors call it, is really important in keeping your mood right and keeping your appetite set uh, uh, and, you know, keeping your, your internal clock working. Yeah. So that's my top tips for, for lockdown. For good mental health, generally. <laughs> that's yeah. good. So I know, I know we won't talk about um, tech because that, that's our shared passion, but I couldn't, I couldn't resist asking you. <laughs> that's, that's what you that'll, be t- that'll be 250 guineas, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, my good, good advice. <laughs> yeah, no one wants uh, medical advice from Kevin off Kevin off the internet. <laughs> yeah, good. I asked, uh, I was asking Marcus Ball when we had him on about vitamin D and COVID. And I don't know. Yeah, perhaps I shouldn't be going. We shouldn't be giving out any medical advice on our podcast. No, no, no I suspect not. <laughs> no, could we actually could we ask about a perter as well at some point? Because um, our two grumpy lads up in the balcony. They, yeah. uh, I can't wait for that tweet. Got it in for a perter, haven't they, Rob Dyke? He's not. He's not a fan. And if I don't ask you, what what's the issue there? And we'll, we'll tread lightly because I think there are good, there are good people right in this. And sometimes, well, I think to be honest, to be honest, Kev, sometimes, and I'll, I'll say this out loud, sometimes the open source crowd can be a little bit. Um, Judean people's front, people's front of Judea. Yeah. Um, uh, in terms of they passionately believe in the same thing. In fact, they all want rid of the Romans, but sometimes they passionately differ on how to get rid of the Romans. Mm. Uh, mm. And sometimes that can overtake the fact that it's the Romans that are the problem, and they they can end up in a fight. And you think I, sometimes I, I look at factions within within the open source crowd and go. Oh, come on, guys, you're all on the same side, really. Um, mm. uh, and yet you're going to fall out over um, a bit of history like like Aperta. Aperta was an earlier attempt sponsored by the NHS to try and stand up 
uh, an open source ecosystem. Is it still going? Is it? You know, I don't know. I was I was on I was on the board when it was first founded, but to be honest, we didn't go at it the right way, and there's important lessons to be learned here. Mm. Um, the, the board of directors, myself included, all amateurs, all with no time in their day jobs to do mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there was a great expectation, I think, that we uh, would be able to achieve things, which actually we were all busy clinicians for the most part uh, on the board. And I got why they put clinicians in. Uh, I think there was inadequate funding going forward um, in order to fund any proper support for that so uh, i don't think there was enough money put in what was put in uh may not have been you know uh, best used intentions were good and there was also a hint that uh we were busy renegotiating contracts with some very very big uh, it suppliers uh, and it may be that some people felt it was just a smoke screen if, you know if you don't take the price of this down we might go off down down an open source route so some people use, have the theory. This is a bargaining tool. Yeah, like yeah. it was a bargaining tool and then neglected not long after major deals were done. Mm. Um, so it left, I think, the number of people with a bad taste in their mouth. Uh, I suspect it's a community invest company that's still on the still on the books, um, but has with it for want of lack of intention, I suspect. Mm. But it's important because it was an attempt, or well, an assuming an attempt by the NHS to stand up an open source entity which um, in the end didn't pan out. Which is which has similarities to what were we, as in yes. you and I and the rest of Saad, and but also lots of other what, what we've loosely called the Rebel Alliance. Yes, but I think I think the key the key difference with this is that you you're looking to stand up something that's already there uh, in in terms of um, you know staff side software uh, and having a thing for uh, an, uh, you know an ecosystem to build up around. Uh, and I think that that would be key. But the other thing is, you're asking for a bit more money, and I think that's very wise. People will have to make their day jobs. It has to, yeah. I, you need you need good people, but good people have mortgages, and um, they need paying, and they yeah. It you, it can't be a hobby anymore. No, no, it can't. I think our interest in it, Assad, is that actually we've got a commercial interest in seeing this success, in seeing a, this be a success, because. Um, an environment in which this exists is a good environment for us to do business. And so uh, I always see that as a feature, not a bug. And I, I agree with you. And if, if a project isn't going to make enough money to both sustain itself and improve itself, it will die. Uh, mm. And, uh, you know, what we would like to see is a really healthy ecosystem around health IT where people can make money uh, uh, and we can have a really healthy marketplace in vibrant health software, which uh, if it works here, it won't just work here. You know, it's the potential exports. Um, I often get young developers talking to me and say, well, how will we sell into the um, NHS? And I said, oh, don't try and sell it to the NHS. It's too difficult. Why don't you go to, um, I don't know, the Middle East, sell it there, prove it there, uh, where people have got money uh, to burn and they can make decisions mm-hmm. and then you can bring it back to the NHS and sell it to us once you've taken us on a jolly to see it in Bahrain. Um, yeah. uh, we can see that it works, uh, but we're we're a hard market at the moment. That's got to change if we're going to get a really healthy um, software market around healthcare in the, in the UK with our unique advantages. Uh, we need to create that opportunity for people to make some money. Yeah, you know, not obscene by a jet money, but you know, a nice little sailboat would be nice. 
<laughs> you could buy a Greek house. Oh. Well, yes, you used to be able to do that once upon a time. <laughs> so Let's you, not go you, there. You were in a place in the sun, weren't you? I was, yeah, I was. Fiona. So Fiona's also a uh, hmm. clinical informatics nerd. So yes, call, yes. She, that? Be yeah, I'm that? sure she'd be all right with that. But, uh, you know, I'm a doctor. She's a nurse. We're a cliche. Uh, and um, we've both been working in health IT for a very long time. Jenna was part of the team that successfully developed uh, the tiny team that successfully developed the electronic prescription service. Fiona's uh, again, your wife, I should point yes. that out to listeners. Yes, or I'm her husband, as she would say. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> but yeah, so we're, 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 we live and breathe health IT in our house. And in our conversations, uh, the children are appalled, thank you, the acronym SOUP. <laughs> that, yeah. uh, that goes on over over dinner, uh, and um, and uh, they describe us laughingly as the posh and becks of health IT. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. I like it. Yeah, there's there's a lot of people who do feel really passionately about this. It once once you accidentally, well, in our case, accidentally found ourselves in this market, I kind of can't leave it alone because it's really annoying me and I want it sorted. I kind of feel like I could go off and work in fintech or uh, I used to work in um, the Ministry of Defence. Uh, I used to work in the defence industry. Well, you made bombs. I, did, I didn't make bombs. <laughs> I did do lots of... Uh, I can't really talk about this without getting... No, you're not supposed uh, to talk oh, about yeah, it. Oh, then you'd have to kill us. I exactly. No, I, don't want to I, think, I think I'm allowed to say... Put it this way, I, I, I can't go to Cuba without someone putting on a pair of rubber gloves. Um, <laughs> so, there you go. Uh, so, yeah. I'll get in the pictures, Kev, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Wow. but if you, if you want to see massive public sector wastage on a huge scale, healthcare's got nothing on uh, defence. So, so that might make us feel better. <laughs> but, but healthcare IT is addictive because you know, you know what's at stake. You know, you yeah. know how you know yeah. how important it is, and you know, you know, if you shave a few seconds off uh, the the millions of interactions we do every day, or you make a one in a million type accident slightly less rare, you make a massive difference. So, you know, the NHS does a, a million interactions a day with the patient, so a million to one shot accident happens every day. Mm. You know, and if you make software a little bit easier, a little bit. Um, better for clinicians, a little bit safer. You make a massive difference on a massive scale. So yeah. I got involved in this because I got tired of saving patients one solar at a time. We need mm. to save we need to save them in droves, if you know what I mean. Yeah. We need to make it yeah. easy for them to save themselves with tech. I know. It's funny how when we, we work on like appraisal stuff and you're a SARD user or you were a SARD user when you you were working yeah. at NTW. Hopefully you've got nice things to say about it. When, well, I wouldn't when, have spoken to you if I didn't like your software, would I? There you go. <laughs> That's you know, a good point. People ring me up and say, ooh, can you have a look at this? Or will you talk to me about that? Yeah. Um, but I thought, oh, here's some decent software. Here's mm. software actually where somebody pops up and what I think is a human, not a boss. It is a human. It asks if I can help. So not just about the software, it's about the service that goes around it. Uh, and you guys have been delivering for me uh, a serviceable appraisal system, um, which was easy to use. And the service alongside it meant that if I was having a problem, there was a human who would help me with it. And that's not very common. Yes, right. Just capture that. Nice soundbite. Yeah. 
Yeah, Another two hundred and fifty guineas for that one, Ken. <laughs> I did not pay him to say this. He came in here of his own free will. But no, that is that is nice to hear. <laughs> but actually, I think that's probably why we this this approach of we we rebel alliance. I think it's got a shot because I think we're coming at it. I, I'm a techie, but I also um, come from a creative background and an arts background. I know Mariah. Mariah and I have been staged together. We have, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> singing, singing and dancing. Um, coming from not just a tech perspective, but a a, a community perspective, uh, a customer service perspective, a the full business stack, the marketing, the sales, you know, and I think that's where sometimes these things have gone wrong in the past that it's gone, oh, it's a technical problem. No, no, it's it's bigger than that. Mm. You, well, it's like the NHS COVID tracing app, isn't it? I, I, I recently did a bit of tweeting about that and it's like everything else. The delivery of the app is the start of the project, mm. not the end. You know, it's everything that comes after that. It's improvement, it's embedding it, training, staff, support, all of that stuff. Um, you know, we've often, I think, thought the end point was the delivery of software, and it's not generally a mistake. I, I feel that the the joy and purpose part of our execution essentials is my favourite part because I think it is where where everything else comes from. Everything else hinges on that idea that people are bought into the the purpose of what we're doing. And people people work hard on tech. We've got a guy, Alex uh, Rudel, who's been working on our open source ESR wrapper project. And, uh, you know, I hope you don't mind me saying, but he's been volunteering his time mm-hmm. on that. Even though we paid him for, for contracting work, he's come along and said, no, I believe in this project and started yeah. working on it, even though we don't pay him, which can't, is not sustainable long-term. But it's, it's not, but the power of joy... The power of a shared idea. I mean, I've been working as a as a volunteer vaccinator over the last, I don't know, two months or however long it's been since we've had the vaccine. And it is awesome. Mm. The power of this army of people. And it's just a joyous, joyous place to be. Uh, not least because when I go down to the vaccination centre, it's full of just retired consultants and just retired GPs. <laughs> yeah. I was at medical school with. And we're having a ball. We're yeah. suddenly useful again. We're having a great time. We're delivering, you know, vaccinations faster than they can deliver vac- vaccine. Uh, and, you know, every patient we see is, is delighted exactly. to be shown mm. the light at the end of the tunnel. You stick them with a needle and they thank you and smile. <laughs> <laughs> that's, wow. That's, that's amazing. The of, that's the power of a social movement. So it's delivered 15 yeah. million vaccines. I see people on Twitter say, oh, it couldn't be right, can't be 15 million. I'm telling you, it is. From you yeah. know, from the local numbers that I've seen, it's absolutely right, um, and most of that has been delivered on goodwill uh, and um, local knowledge, sound yeah. local knowledge. I don't mind me saying, you said that you came back from the centre and you're like welling up emotionally from. I, I, I cry at pottery throwdown, man. It's you know, it's yeah. it's it's, it's it, <laughs> I, I cry whenever I see beautiful things <laughs> or beautiful work or beautiful teamwork. Actually, makes yeah. me cry when a team. A team are doing really good, and the, the machine that's delivering mm. vaccine here in Newcastle did make me cry. Although mm. it's not difficult, Lassie come home yeah. every time, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, and you're a Newcastle United fan as well. So well, I uh, cry that, every that week. Must that. Make you. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Don't yeah. mention Chelsea last night, but there you go. Oh. 
my dad will be listening. He's a Chelsea fan. Season ticket holder. He'll he'll have enjoyed that then. But even uh, to be fair, even even the attendance at Newcastle United, fifty two thousand there every week. We haven't won anything in my lifetime, but there's still faith, joy, uh, a sense of togetherness, uh, and and hope above all else. Mm. That things might be different. Things might not always be like they've been for the last fifty years. And that's my hope about what you're doing, Kevin, and what we might do with open platforms in the NHS. If there's hope for Newcastle, there's hope for us. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. (laughs) Yeah, maybe that hasn't worked out at some point. (laughs) (laughs) You too could be Newcastle United. (laughs) You've been working at it for 50 years. 50 years. I I really admire um, Jürgen Klopp. There's there's a man who, who... who seems to symbolise? I know he's. He, he might get by the time this goes out, he might be fired or something. But <laughs> he seems to embody leadership to me, in terms of how he treats his players, even when things are going, you know, not not that great, and they've had three three bad hits on the run. But just he's got he's got a kind of leadership. He's got he's got one, uh, you know, he's got that charismatic sort of authority that. That goes with having a really big, warm personality, and that that'll get you so far. Mm. Um, probably get you all the way in football. In health IT, you need different kinds of leadership and different kinds of authority. Sometimes I could bore for England on the nature of authority, but you need the financial authority. He who pays says, if you've got the budget, you get to call it. Uh, you need the structural authority. I'm the boss, I'm the NHS England, so I get to tell you what it looks like. Um, or better still, I get to tell you that you can go and do it and you can tell me what it looks like. Uh, and then there's sapiential authority, the, the authority that comes from special wisdom like the doctors have got. Mm. Sapiens meaning wisdom in Latin. Mm. And you need to make all those types of leadership and authority line up in a big IT project. Uh, and often they don't. If you get one out of whack, you might have a brilliant charismatic leader, no money, falls over. Mm-hmm. Or you might have brilliant charismatic leader, money, but the clinicians aren't bought in, so we've got no sapiential authority, so it falls over. And it's the lining up of these different kinds of leadership and authority, which I think is important. And Klopp maybe gets this right. I'm pretty sure he's got control of the transfer budgets. I'm pretty sure he gets to decide who comes and goes. Yeah. I'm pretty sure he knows more about football than anybody else, so he's got the sapiential piece covered. But you've got to line it all up, not always in the same person, but you've got to line up those different kinds of authority. Yeah. I thought it was probably a bit of a pushed gate to praise Jurgen Klopp. <laughs> <laughs> I refer the honourable gentleman to my earlier answer. <laughs> what uh, do you guys want to talk a little bit about NHS E? Oh yeah, what's going on with NHS X? We, we yesterday we heard that they were getting merged into NHS E. I was speaking to someone from NHS X who was very senior yesterday. He was sort of aware. I of don't it. know. I don't know, but um, it's not unusual for what the series call NHS alphabet to have a bit of a churn. Um, the, the NHS runs on the lava lamp principle. You know, you apply political heat at the bottom to a blob of wax in a sea of oil and they break up into smaller blobs, go up to the top and down to the bottom and then they're called regional health authorities or ICSs. The same mm-hmm. is true within, within the centre. So over time we've had uh, NHS Connecting for Health, which became the information centre, which became the NHS information centre and before all of that was the NHS Information Authority 
And since then, we've had NHS Digital and we've had NHS E and NHS X. Now, I thought Matt Hancock's creation of NHS X was the right idea at the time because I thought he wanted to disrupt what had been going on. And I think he, he was looking to put in a new agency to disrupt the way things had been kind of stuck in that unhelpful equilibrium that I talked about earlier, required an unbalancing manoeuvre. And I think X was to be that unbalancing manoeuvre. Mm. I mean, couldn't have been worse for X. Mm. Uh, COVID hit, you know, eight to 10 months into their existence and suddenly they've got to produce apps that are going to contact people and trace this, that and the other. Uh, you know, the earth moved under their feet. Um, miracles have been achieved in terms of NHS connectivity. They've done good things about, you know, freeing up budget to get video calling and, you know, Microsoft Teams across the piece, which has made national corporation much easier than it was before. But their mission, their tech vision has got lost. And because of that, I think they're now under pressure from, you know, other silos, you know, other islands within the centre. And, you know, it's it's merciless the rate of churn sometimes at that level within the organisation and it's difficult for people. The only thing to hang on to, I think, is that that is a perfectly good tech vision. Please, God, mm. let's not write another one because right. we've got, you know, NHST coming down the track or whatever. Well, please stick with mm. Plan A, uh, only fund it uh, and try it out in a few places. You don't have to do the whole thing, big bang across the NHS. Let's do a few projects that demonstrate the worth of open platforms uh, with a decent amount of money uh, and see if we can make improvement. We do. We always make progress. But the constant organisational churn can be quite a distraction. I know they were getting in the neck a little bit from the Public Accounts Committee for having the vision but not ex- executing it. Um, it's sort of pretty we said, we said they, they can't go back to the Public Accounts Committee and say, excuse me, have you noticed what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> With the, the, the PAC um, report was in uh, uh, November. So it was during COVID that that was that they met and discussed it. I mean, I, it, I so. get it. The, the, the pack are doing their job. Their, their job is to hold these people to account. But at the same time, have a heart, man. You know, yeah. there's, there's yeah. quite, a, quite a bit going on. But the call there is there to implement it. Yeah. And uh, hopefully, yeah. I think we've got a way to help to them help. do that. That's that's my belief. Well, they, while they've had their mind on other things, you've been writing a, a delivery plan and coming up with a way to you know, have a look at it. And, you know, hopefully they'll see the value in that. Yeah, yeah. let's hope so. If not, I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> do it. There's a lot to be said for that. There really is a lot to be said for that. If if the government can't create this ecosystem in community, well, do you have to create it yourself? Maybe you do. Do with a little bit of a jet engine, but yeah. Would help, yeah, mm-hmm. but you never know. Um, there's more than one way to get things done usually. Joe, I have one last question for you. And that is, if there's one thing our listeners should know, what would that be? No pressure. Oh, John, one thing you should know. One thing you should know is that you should have watched the 15-minute video by Morgan Alistair, who will explain to you why you can't architect this all massively from the centre and how you have to grow it. Cultivation is better than construction in larger, in very large, multi-organisational IT projects. Go and see Morgan Alistair's little video. It's 15 minutes of your life, 15 minutes to change my life. Have a look at that. Perfect. Yeah. I will definitely be putting that out there. I love that video. I'm so glad you introduced it to me. I, I've been a big, uh, I've been really interested in sort of 
um, Darwinian processes and cultural evolution and having that approach. And when you showed it to me, I was like, oh, of course. Yeah, of course. It was, <laughs> it, good. It, it, was, was it was like that for me. It was a, it was a revolutionary moment because you like to think that everybody isn't a psychopath who needs a reward every 10 minutes. And most people aren't, thankfully. You know, 99% mm-hmm. of people aren't psychopaths. But most organizations, they do need a reward every 10 minutes. They really struggle to defer gratification because uh, they've got a report at the end of every week uh, and they've got a report that things are better than they were. Otherwise, you may have no value to the organization and organizations do spit people out. Um, so there's a psychopathic tendency to most organizations uh, yeah. and you've got to deliver more quickly than you think. Well, listen, whatever happens of this project, one of the uh, things I've really enjoyed is getting to know you. Because we, I feel like we've spent quite a bit of time discussing these things, and uh, I feel very fortunate that we've we've got to sort of know you and and, and others on this this journey. Well, it's been entirely mutual, Kevin, and I, I've said this before, but you've relit relit my open source fire. Uh, Good. So we play out with who, who sang "Relight My Fire." I don't know. I don't know, but that one, that song, <laughs> that's the one. Better than Xanadu. To take that. <laughs> I wouldn't know. We, ne- we never even mentioned dancing guy. That's a shame. Never no, mind. the dancing man on the hill. That's that's for another day. Yeah, <laughs> it's a Simon Sinek, isn't it? The dancing man on the hill. Yeah. About, yeah. How, about how you start a movement, and I feel like we, we you need to embrace the people who come along and join in to the start of that movement. And yeah. I don't know who did start this. It's probably you or someone or Mars or Rob Dyke or who knows. There's lots of people who've been doing this stuff. Mm. Whatever it is, I think we're all starting to dance together now. And uh, we want, so if that sounds fun, come and join us. Mm. We're all dancing on a hillside. It's going to be good. Great. Well, thank you very much for joining us. That was great fun. Yeah, it was good fun. Thank you to all our listeners who tuned in to today's episode of Sardisms. We hope you've enjoyed hearing about Joe McDonald's digital legacy. And if you're looking to join a community of users who want to help shape and develop an open source future, then get in touch. You can find out more about Sard by visiting sardjv.co.uk or send us a tweet on Twitter at sardjv and use hashtag Sardisms. Until next time, have a great week.